obviously the most efficient payment system in the history of man, if that's what Bitcoin is, is going to be good for good guys. It's also going to be good for the bad guys. And spent a lot of time focusing on the fact that it's good for the bad guys. But the reality is it's good for, for every kind of merchant, every kind of business. And the fact that they were able to trace and take down Silk Road guys means that there's an opportunity here for law enforcement officials are going to have to figure out new ways to do things because this is new and novel, but there are ways to do that. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from the uh, rather icy shores of Massachusetts, just uh, north of Boston, where I write a couple of blogs, one called Law Sites and another called Media Law. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Before we get into today's topic, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is a leading provider of online practice management for lawyers. You can find out more about it at www.goclio.com. Well, Bob, according to a recent article in the Business Insider, if you'd purchased $1,000 worth of Bitcoin in 2010, you'd have $2.4 million today. So that's what we're talking about. The electronic currency has only been in existence for four years, but in the past year, it's seen an exponential rise in value and circulation. If I didn't get your attention the first time with that valuation, it was valued at only $13 at the end of 2012, and it was worth $700 by the end of 2013. As of yesterday, it's hovering around $850 US dollars. Some say Bitcoins are not economically significant, and I suppose in the overall scheme of the global economy, they aren't yet, but we're already seeing ATMs popping up and enterprises using them. Just this week, a major real estate firm in a brokerage firm in New York City announced they were going to start accepting Bitcoins in real estate transactions. All of this raises many questions, and in particular, a lot of legal gray areas that we're going to talk about today. That's going to be our topic, are some of the legal issues and some of the operating issues regarding Bitcoins. And today we're going to be speaking to two guests. I'd first like to introduce Lowell Ness. He's a partner at Perkins Coie, a nationwide law firm with extensive experience in virtual currency. The firm's virtual currency report blog, which Lowell regularly contributes to, provides a legal outlook on the state of Bitcoin and the market. Lowell's practice focuses on high-growth emerging companies and involves venture capital financing, mergers and acquisitions, public offerings, and private placements. He also acts as company counsel or investors counsel in venture capital financings. Thanks for joining us, Lowell. Happy to be here. I would also like to welcome to the program senior online editor at Forbes, Kashmir Hill. Kashmir is a former editor at Above the Law. She's a privacy pragmatist with an interest in the intersection of law, technology, social media, and personal information. She's been following the Bitcoin story from the start. We'll be releasing an ebook documenting Bitcoin's rise later this year. Early in 2013, she wrote a series in which she spent a week living on Bitcoin or trying to live on Bitcoin in San Francisco. A really interesting read that I highly commend to you. Happy to have you with us, Kashmir Hill. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, Kazmir, since we've got you as a somewhat of an expert, at least you've tried to use it, can you give a layman's explanation of what Bitcoin is all about? 
Ooh, this is always a challenge. A lot of people like to think of it as basically digital cash. It's a way to pay for things online without attaching your identity to it the way you have to with a credit card or even with PayPal. You can just basically send this cash. There are all these different aspects of Bitcoin. There's also you know, the Bitcoin community, which is this libertarian, stateless currency advocating group. And then you have the technology of Bitcoin, which is a little bit more complicated and involves cryptography and digital signatures. And that creates the security of it. So you can't just create new Bitcoin and say, hey, here's this new cash I'm introducing into the system. I like to think of it as like one big, huge ledger where you're just keeping track of how much everybody in the system has at any given time. I hope we could talk more about some of the mechanics of this. I thought your articles were fascinating, which you tried to use it. That was a while ago now, I guess, in the history of Bitcoin. I'm not sure it's changed a lot all over the country. San Francisco's probably evolved since then. But just mechanically, how do you use it? How do you get Bitcoin and how do you spend it? So to get Bitcoin, uh, it's pretty easy these days. You can open up an account with a service like Coinbase and simply buy it and then, you know, you link your bank account and then they send you Bitcoin. It used to be a lot harder. Okay, so I own some Bitcoin now. You and I would like get together. You would give me $100 in cash and then I would send to your phone 0.1 BTC. But now it's changed. It's a little bit easier to get it. You need a smartphone or an internet connection and you're essentially just, you know, sending Bitcoin to someone else through the, through the network. It's a lot like, you know, sending an email. What about the legality of Bitcoin? Is it legal tender as we see on the dollar? When I was living on Bitcoin back in May, people were worried that the U.S. government was going to come after Bitcoin the way it did Liberty Reserve and take it down and try to make it illegal. But they had Senate hearings in November and basically everyone there from DOJ, Department of Treasury, they all said, yeah, this is legal and we feel like we're on top of it. So at least in the U.S. it's regarded as legal. In China this year, the Chinese government, I think, was a little bit concerned about the degree to which Bitcoin was competing with RMB. And so they didn't rule it illegal, but did, you know, they essentially issued guidance that said Bitcoin is only a digital currency. It's not worth anything in the real world, and you're welcome to trade it, but it isn't a real currency that you can buy real things with. So you're, we're seeing different approaches in different countries. Lowell, let's flip that question over to you. I mean, you're a lawyer who's done a lot of work in this area. Are there legal concerns that you see with the use of Bitcoin? Well, the biggest issue with Bitcoin, honestly, is right now is the fact that it's novel just from a practice standpoint. And it's novel in every way it could be. And so there's a lot of speculation whether you know, it's a security, whether it's a commodity, what the taxation rules should be, you know, and when you're representing venture investors, you get into sticky 40 Act and Advisors Act issues. And then, you know, of course, the, the really big question is the money transmission laws of not just the federal government regulated by FinCEN, but, but also each of the 50 states, which quite frankly are all a little different. There's a huge amount of regulatory complexity surrounding the fact that it's novel and surrounding the fact that people just don't know the answers to a lot of these open questions. But in terms of the basic question of whether it's an illegal currency, I think that's right. FinCEN and the, the recent congressional hearings all seem to point to the fact that, at least in the U.S., it's not an invalid sort of <laughs> illegal currency, so to speak. It really is a payment system. And I do like to think of it as, you know, email for money. And, you know, in terms of the mechanics, it's really just like email, right? Because you have your own account you can send from and only you can send from it because 
you go to a website and you enter a password and access your account. You're the only one with the password, so only you can send from it. And all you need from somebody else in order to send money to them is their Bitcoin address, just like you'd need their email address to send them an email. So, and in fact, a lot of wallets these days, which is the website you go to and enter your password to access your, your Bitcoin, even allow you to use your email as your public address. So you could literally, just knowing somebody's email, you could send them money. And it's as simple as doing that with a smartphone, which, you know, disintermediates, obviously, all of the, the different incumbent payment systems that are out there. And it is disruptive. And that's what I think the VCs see here in Silicon Valley is that this is really, you know, while there's a lot of libertarian issues and, you know, people see it as good for different reasons, I think the Silicon Valley uh, VCs see this as the next really promising, super efficient payment system. Casimir, why do we need this? And what is it that's different about Bitcoin than the dollar or any other currency? Why is it that we'd want to switch from the dollar, what we're using now, to Bitcoin? Why investors like it and why merchants like it is that it allows you to spend money online without incurring much of a transaction fee. Both ways of paying, you know, in stores and then online with a credit card, there's going to be something like, you know, 2 to 4% in fees, whereas with Bitcoin, you can send money and you don't have that cost. For people that use it, they like the idea of a payment system without third parties. So like something that happened to me after I lived on Bitcoin, I went to go pay, I was moving into a new apartment and my landlord wanted me to send her the security deposit and I did it by PayPal. And PayPal, for some random reason, decided to freeze my payment for about a week and the money left my account but then they didn't pass it along to my soon-to-be landlord, and it was just in transit while they flagged it as fraud or something like that. It was very frustrating. I was like afraid I was going to lose the apartment in San Francisco, and it's really hard to find housing here. And with Bitcoin, I would have just been able to make this online payment tour, and there's no one who could stop the payment. So a lot of people like that kind of freedom. And then, of course, in the past, people have liked Bitcoin because the famous uses are for online gambling sites, online drug bazaar, Silk Road. It was a place where you could make payments where it wasn't you know, necessarily attached to your identity. And so that's another benefit that really early on helped Bitcoin grow. Well, is that still the case? You, know, you read a lot about the anonymity of Bitcoin. You read a lot about its use in Silk Road and sites like that. With what you've described as it being linked to specific accounts, is it, Lowell, let me just ask you, I mean, is it as anonymous as people think it is? Is it equivalent to using cash or is it more traceable than that? Well, one interesting thing about Bitcoin is that Every single transaction in Bitcoin is literally available to the entire public. And the reason it's anonymous is because of that. And what's going to be coming, I think, is we're going to sort of flip around from talking about anonymity to talking about privacy as Bitcoin starts to really take off. Because the reality is, while just like email, you know, anyone can have a randomly generated email address from Gmail, you can do the same with your Bitcoin address. And it can be whatever you want it to be, and nobody necessarily knows who it is. But once you start to figure out which Bitcoin addresses go with which person, the enforcement folks can follow the money just like they can, and, and perhaps even better than they, certainly better than they can with cash. And so, you know, taking down Silk Road was actually a really great thing for the good guys in Bitcoin. I mean, obviously, you know, the most efficient payment system in the history of man, if that's what Bitcoin is, is going to be good for good guys. It's also going to be good for the bad guys. And spent a lot of time focusing on the fact that it's good for the bad guys. But the reality is it's good for, for every kind of merchant, every kind of business. And the fact that they were able to trace and take down the 
Silk Road guys means that there's an opportunity here for the law enforcement officials are going to have to figure out new ways to do things because this is new and novel, but there are ways to do that. Casimir, how is it backed? I mean, you hear that the dollar is backed by the federal government and the gold in Fort Knox. What does Bitcoin have behind it? Bitcoin has really the trust of its network, and that is one of its biggest flaws. Bitcoin's value is pegged to what people think Bitcoin is worth. So that is why it's so volatile. When I lived on it, it was worth around $100. In December, it was up to 1200 Today, it's down to around 800 So, you know, I bought cupcakes for, I think it was around $40 at the time, or 0.5 Bitcoin. And now, given the value of Bitcoin, I spent $400 on those cupcakes. But the thing about Bitcoin is, its value doesn't really matter. The actual appeal of Bitcoin is really this idea of a payment rail that doesn't have third parties and doesn't have transaction fees. So given that, it doesn't matter what the value of Bitcoin is. It just matters that on each side of the transaction, you can very quickly and easily turn it into the dollar or into fiat. So I want to be able to send you know, $300 to China with no fees. I need to be able to change $300 to Bitcoin here very quickly, transmit it to China, and then they need to be able to turn it into RMB very quickly. So its actual value doesn't matter. It just matters that it's very fluid. We need to take a short break. We will be right back to talk more about Bitcoins with our guests. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Craig Williams with my co-host Bob Ambrosi. We're speaking with Casimir Hill, senior online editor of Forbes. And Lowell Ness, he's a partner at Perkins Coie. Lowell, before the break, we've been obviously talking about Bitcoin, but there's this thing called the Bit License to practice law with regard to Bitcoin. What is that all about? Yeah, it's very interesting what's happening on the regulatory front. And uh, New York came out swinging, as you would expect, with any kind of new fintech, financial-type technology. They get very nervous and are very protective of the sort of old economy and the Wall Street kind of players. But, you know, it's very interesting to see that they've now flipped around and are almost trying to market their brand, their, their licensing, by calling it the bit license. California's also obviously got an interest in trying to figure out how to create clarity and how to create rules for Bitcoin. And we're going to see an interesting, I think, duel between California and New York to be kind of the place for the Bitcoin community to be licensed and work. You know, that's really what is needed, I think, is clarity. I mentioned before it's novel, and there's so many novel issues in terms of legal issues that 
it does tend to make it more difficult for investors and everybody else to put money into this space. So having that kind of clarity doesn't matter what it is. Bitcoin is enough of a, a real business. And you know, these companies are making real money that they can afford to comply. The community just needs to know what the rules are. And so it'll be interesting to see what the bit license evolves into and how it duels with California and which of them will be the more Bitcoin-friendly community. Well, who should be setting those rules, Lowell? I mean, is this the only kind of currency in the world that's not a government-issued currency? How does it get sorted out in terms of who regulates this? Well, we talked about China before, which is really interesting. I think what China did effectively was basically say, look, you can't exchange it for the local currency, which, when you think about it, doesn't actually change anything because you could still convert it into dollars and then convert dollars into the local currency. So the regulators need to fundamentally understand that Bitcoin is here to stay and it needs to be regulated sort of in a way that makes sense because frankly, it's global and the Bitcoin community can exist anywhere. And so, you know, no one country can really uh, shut it down. So the, the sensible thing to do is to, is to come up with the right rules and fit it into the right slots for for regulating it. But yeah, it's tough. And it's especially tough with 50 state money transmission regulations, which is the thing that's really, I think, difficult uh, at the moment to handle. It just takes a lot of time and money to kind of become a money transmitter in all 50 states. I think the other big issue beyond regulation is comfort level for banks, commercial banks. The commercial banking community has uh, up until now been very selective about which Bitcoin companies they want to work with. And I think they've been considerably more nervous about uh, banking Bitcoin companies than you know, I've seen in any other kind of industry. A lot of it has to do, again, with the, the lack of clarity around appropriate regulation. So in some sense, you know, who should regulate? You know, it would be great if it was the federal government, but obviously we've got states have rights too, and, and they're going to want to weigh in and have their say. Casimir, you've worked with Bitcoin and you've studied it and written about it. What's your sense of what the future holds for Bitcoin? I mean, I get the sense that it will, whether it's Bitcoin or something like Bitcoin, another cryptocurrency, something like this is going to take off. It is a really good way to be able to pay for things online. And it's a way to pay for things. We see credit card hacks all the time, right? Uh, Target recently had millions of people's credit cards compromised. And that's because credit cards aren't a great way to make payments. You include all these details that can be stolen and reused. And that is one of the nice things about Bitcoin. When you send a transaction, there's nothing there that can later be used again to break into your account or compromise your account. So I think that's appealing. I do think it's kind of a future of payments. It will be like a PayPal. I don't think the U.S. dollar is going to go away or the credit cards will go away. But I think Bitcoin will be another way that we pay for things. Well, security is a concern, though, is it not? I mean, a month ago, the New York Times reported there had been something like 30 instances of theft of Bitcoin. I don't know how significant the thefts have been. I think they said they had documented the thefts of about 1,000 Bitcoins, not in value, but literally numbers of Bitcoins. But it remains a concern, isn't it? I understand that there's sort of the peer-to-peer enforcement of this perhaps as a policing mechanism, but do we have to be concerned about the security of this kind of currency? And, and if so, what should we be doing to protect ourselves? Yeah, I mean, so Bitcoin has become very valuable. There have been hacks of, I mean, these are basically online banks, so they're pretty appealing to thieves. So there have been hacks and they'll go in and they essentially steal the Bitcoin. And what's hard about that is that these transactions are irreversible. So if they go in there and take your Bitcoin out, it's gone. And it is an issue of 
who goes after these guys. What a lot of people do in Bitcoin is they have they have significant holdings is they'll keep their Bitcoin at something called cold storage, which essentially means they download the Bitcoin to a device that they take offline. So the Winklevosses, Tyler Cameron Winklevoss, famous for their lawsuit against Facebook, own 1% of Bitcoin. They have, you know, millions of dollars worth. So they actually have that on, you know, a USB drive or on a computer and they take it to a bank and they, you know, have it in safe deposit boxes in banks and it's offline so it can't be hacked. And so I think that's kind of funny that you take this digital money and then make it physical and then put it in a real bank. But that's what some people are starting to do to protect themselves. I think I mentioned early in the program that just this week, a real estate brokerage in New York announced it's going to start taking Bitcoin for real estate transactions. As a lawyer myself, this raises the question to me of what the heck do I do if a client comes in and says, I want to buy that house using Bitcoin or I want to engage in whatever transaction it is using Bitcoin? How do lawyers who aren't as up to speed on this as you are, what do they need to know? What do they need to be watching out for? And is this something they even should be handling or should they be referring it off to somebody who is an expert in Bitcoin? The honest truth is they do need to do their homework if they're going to represent the client. I happen to be in the the MCLE compliance group coming up at the end of the month, and so I've been taking my ethics courses and been reminded frequently about a lawyer's duty of competency in in the subject matter. And and listen, that's a big deal, and Bitcoin is novel, and, and the security issues are problematic, and if you don't know what you're doing, it's trouble. But I don't think it's that big of a deal, honestly, at least in the circumstance that you're talking about where your client wants to pay for something in Bitcoin, I think that the practical thing to do is to go buy some Bitcoin, establish a wallet, and do a little bit of online research and homework. And there's tons of blogs and you know, blockchain.info and other places you can go to learn about Bitcoin. You can develop a fair amount of subject matter competency in a weekend just really looking on the online tools and buy some yourself and transact it yourself so that you know really what you're talking about. We are just about at the end of our program, and uh, before we conclude this discussion, which has really been interesting, and I wish we had a lot more time to to go into it, we do like to give uh, each of you an opportunity to share your closing thoughts on the topic and let our listeners know uh, how they can follow up with you and find out more about what you're doing. So, uh, Kashmir, let's start with you. I write on Forbes. I've got a page called The Not-So-Private Parts, and I'm usually covering kind of the intersection of technology and privacy. And I became interested in Bitcoin originally because of the privacy aspects and being able to pay for illegal things online. But, but yeah, as I said before, I, I really see Bitcoin as something that will be Bitcoin or something like it. There are many other kind of imitator cryptocurrencies out there, from Litecoin to Coinye, which is inspired by Kanye West, so there are a lot of other uh, competitors that Bitcoin seems like it's out in front of them. And I just think it's going to be a method of payment in the future. So I think it's a good idea to, to try it out, to buy a few, see what it's like. And, and it's kind of fun to dabble in these futuristic things. When I was living on Bitcoin, I, I felt like I was living in a Neil Stevenson sci-fi novel. So it's just it's kind of fun to play around with it. Thanks a lot. And uh, Lil Ness, uh, your final thoughts on the Bitcoin conversation? Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And the interesting thing about Bitcoin is if it, if it really does reach a tipping point, which is clearly what needs to happen, it's, we talked earlier about what's the intrinsic value really uh, of Bitcoin. And I suppose unlike tulips, Bitcoin does have an intrinsic value as a payment system. But to have value as a payment system, it does need to reach a tipping point. And it feels like we may be nearing that. And we've got you know the first major 
thought leaders here in Silicon Valley putting up significant amounts of money. You know, Andreessen Horowitz put $25 million into, into Coinbase recently. And those kinds of events, you know, tell me that we're close to a tipping point here. And so I think it does make sense to at least hold a little bit of Bitcoin because it becomes a global payment system. You know, we talked about the fact that the, the value of it doesn't matter. It really just translates into dollars. But boy, when you think about the fact that there can only be 25 million Bitcoin created, 21 million, whatever it is, there's a fixed number and it's relatively small, that each Bitcoin is going to be worth an awful lot of money if it becomes adopted, hits that tipping point. So having one or two Bitcoin makes an awful lot of sense. People can follow up with what I'm doing on the virtualcurrencyreport.com, which is the blog that we do here at Perkins. Thanks a lot, Lowell, and uh, really appreciate Lowell Ness, partner at Perkins Cooey and Kashmir Hill, uh, senior online editor at Forbes, for taking the time to be with us today and sharing your thoughts on this. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. And Bob, now we've come to the point in the show where you and I have 30 seconds to share our closing thoughts before we're cut off by the buzzers. So we'll start with you. I really, I latched on to what Lowell said towards the end there, which is about the ethics issue here. Some of the duty of competency for lawyers, which a lot has been said lately, involves a duty of competency in technology as well as in law. I think, no question, there are a lot of our listeners, a lot of lawyers out there who have no idea what a Bitcoin is or really haven't thought much about it and probably should start to get up to speed. Clearly, this is gaining traction and gaining momentum. It's going to be a topic, a big, big topic, I think, over the coming year, and lawyers need to understand what they're talking about when they're talking about Bitcoin. That's it. I beat the buzzer. And Bob, it seems to me that Bitcoin is kind of where we were with the cell phone industry back in the late 80s and early 90s. Everybody was kind of not understanding what it was all about, how much it was going to cost and what the ultimate benefits are. And pretty much cell phones have now taken over the world. So it seems to me as if this new technology and one of these companies, if not several of them, will come to the top and we'll be dealing with this for the rest of our lives in a very substantial way. I'm running right down to the 7-Eleven to buy some Bitcoin now. If you can get it there. (laughs) I don't think so. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Thank you for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Join us next week for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.